Now we come to the Old Testament reading for today, which is Jeremiah 46, verses 1 through 11. And for the sake of time, we'll skip down to 19 through 28. Also, uh, this text stands behind much of what is said in Revelation 9, 13 through 21. I won't make it explicit, uh, the connections, but I hope that you connect the dots yourself. Uh, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, concerning the nations, about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Prepare buckler and shield and advance for battle. Harness the horses. Mount, O horsemen. Take your stations with your helmets. Polish your spears. Put on your armor. Why have I seen it? They are dismayed and have turned backward. Their warriors are beaten down and have fled in haste. They look not back. Terror on every side, declares the Lord. The swift cannot flee away, nor the warrior escape. In the north, by the river Euphrates, they have stumbled and fallen. Who is this, rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He said, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put, who handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Go up to Gilead and take balm, O virgin daughter of Egypt. In vain you have used many medicines. There is no healing for you. Verse 19. Prepare yourselves baggage for exile, O inhabitants of Egypt. For Memphis shall become a waste, a ruin without inhabitant. A beautiful heifer is Egypt, but a biting fly from the north has come upon her. Even her hired soldiers in her midst are like fattened calves. Yes, they have turned and fled together. They did not stand, for the day of their calamity has come upon them, the time of their punishment. She makes a sound like a serpent gliding away. For her enemies march in force and come against her with axes like those who fell fell trees. They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. The daughter of Egypt shall be put to shame. She shall be delivered into the hand of of a people from the north. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon. Of Thebes and and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings, upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterwards, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away. And your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. Jeremiah 46, 1 through 11 and 19 through 28. What did you hear there except a word of the Lord spoken against the nations? Egypt is going to be defeated. Who is going to defeat them? It is uh, Nebuchadnezzar who is going to defeat them. And where is it going to happen? Three times stated over at the great river 
Euphrates. It will happen there. Let's go now to Revelation 19, 13 through 21. Revelation 19, I'm sorry, Revelation 9, verses 13 through 21. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads And by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So far the reading of God's holy word. We do pray a blessing upon the preaching of it. When the sixth angel blew his trumpet, John heard something. He heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So he hears something, and the voice comes from the four horns of the golden altar. This golden altar has been mentioned many times now in the book of Revelation. In 6-9, John saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne under the altar. From there they cried out to God for justice to be served, and what follows that text is a description of judgment. And so somebody cries out from underneath this altar, they are those who have been slain. And what are they crying out for except for vengeance, for justice to be served? And what follows is a response to their prayers, judgment is poured out upon the ungodly. In 8.3, It was upon this altar that John saw an angel offer up much incense along with the prayers of all the saints before the throne of God. What are we to assume then that these prayers are about except uh, prayers for justice or vindication? And in 8.5, John says that the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Uh, This altar then... Has taken a central place in the book of Revelation. It has come to represent, on the one hand, the prayers of the saints in heaven and on earth coming to the ears of God. And on the other hand, this is the place from which the judgments of God are poured out upon the earth. Do you see it? That it is from this altar that the prayers of the saints, wherever they are, come before the ears of God. And it is from this same altar that uh, God's judgment is poured out upon the earth in response to the prayers of of the saints. The same seems to be true here in Revelation 9:13. John heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar. Are we not to assume that one judgment is about to be released and two that it is the prayers of God's people that precipitate precipitate the outpouring of of the judgment. That is what I think is going on here in this text. Once again, uh, we have mention of this altar 
a voice coming from it and judgments proceeding from it as well. The number four is used in the book of Revelation as well as in other places in Scripture to symbolize completeness, especially in connection with the earth. Uh, We use the number four symbolically even today in this way. We refer to the ends of the earth as the four corners of the earth, don't we? Uh, North, south, east, and west is what we have in mind. The number four symbolizes global completeness. It is uh, to hear to to this four-cornered altar that the prayers of all the saints throughout the world come. And it is from here, from this four-cornered altar, this four-horned altar, that the judgments of God are poured out upon all the earth. Horns symbolize power in the Bible. And so it is from this altar with four horns on its corners that, the, that um, God's powerful and sovereign judgments are, are poured out. What did the voice coming from the horns of the altar say? Uh, the, vo- the voice from the altar addressed the sixth angel who had the trumpet. So the angel blows the trumpet in the altar. The voice from the altar speaks back to him. And here is what he is told to do. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the number four appears again. It tells us that whatever these do, it is going to have to do with the whole world, I think. That seems to be the consistent symbolism here. And also the mention of four angels bound in this text should remind us immediately of the other bound quadruplets that we have encountered in the book of Revelation. The four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6 should come to mind. So too should the four angels who are called the four winds of heaven in Revelation 7, 1 through 2. They should also come to mind. These spiritual beings were given authority by God to harm the earth. But they are described as being restrained until some appointed time. Then they are released to do what it is that they have been prepared to do. The same is true here in Revelation 9. Mention is made of four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Uh, The Euphrates River originates in eastern Turkey. It flows through Syria and Iraq. It joins with the Tigris River and then empties into the Persian Gulf. In biblical times... Uh, from the perspective of God's people, God's covenant people, the, the Jewish people. The Euphrates River was associated with the enemy nations from the east who threatened them and who would eventually carry them off into captivity. So I want you to put yourself in Israel and under the old covenant for just a moment. Imagine yourself in that land, in Israel, and under the old covenant, And then I want you to look to the east, away from the Mediterranean Sea, away from the the, the sea, and, and, and across the Jordan, far out into the wilderness. And I want you to imagine what it would be that you would feel in your heart as you looked off into that 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 foreign land. Uh, You would immediately think of the enemies that live there, the enemies that that threaten you from that place. Uh, That is the place where conquering armies come from, from that uh, Jewish perspective from there in Israel. Quoting Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, it is entitled, 
the triumph of the Lamb. The Euphrates River had a biblical and contemporary significance. Biblical significance, uh, significance in the pages of Scripture from the history of, of God's dealing with Israel. But also contemporary significance, meaning that it would have meant something to uh, the, the people of God who were living in the Roman Empire in and around 90 AD. Both biblical and contemporary significance. In biblical history, the Euphrates connoted a source of oppression and a place of exile. Beyond the Euphrates River had stood ancient Nineveh, capital of the Assyrian Empire that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and Babylon, which had carried Judah into captivity. The Lord had humbled and dismantled Babylon through the rising power of the Medo-Persian Empire and had resettled his people in the land of promise. But prophets of the exile still spoke of foreign powers such as Gog, who would sweep down from the northeast from the Euphrates. To afflict God's people. That is in Johnson's commentary, page 150. Johnson explains the contemporary significance of the Euphrates, saying, For residents of the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, the Euphrates was the eastern edge of Rome's domain, beyond which were the threatening powers of the east, especially Parthia with its cavalry of mounted archers always harassing the Roman Empire's eastern outposts. This is interesting. Pay attention here. Uh, during the 60s, that is uh, the 60s of the first century, after the conflagration that destroyed large, large portions of Rome, that is after the fire that destroyed large portions of Rome, and Nero's, Emperor Nero's disappearance, rumors flew in the capital and the provinces that the megalomania how do you say this, the megalomaniac, I'll, I'll stick with that, emperor had escaped to the east and was making preparations to reconquer the world at the head of the Parthian cavalry. Do you understand what he's saying here? So if you put yourself not in the Old Covenant and in, in the Jewish context, but now if you put yourself in the Roman context in the first century AD and you hear mention of the Euphrates River, what do you think of except of the eastern boundary of, of your uh, your nation's domain, that is the place where the enemies of Rome threatened from, especially the Parthians. Nero, who was just a maniac, um, had disappeared, and there was this myth that he had gone into the East Country. He was uh, going to gather armies to himself once again and then to reconquer Rome. And so mention of the Euphrates River would have that significance, both biblical significance and also contemporary significance. Do you know what I mean by the word significance? I'm, I'm saying that this river symbolizes something. It symbolizes something. And so why do I read these excerpts from Johnson's commentary? It's to help us get into the mind of the original reader of the book of Revelation living in 90 AD. The book was written first to them and not first of all to us so when we read Euphrates, we might not think of anything at all except the literal river that still flows to this day. But to the 90 AD audience, to Christians living in Rome, particularly Christians who had some sense of the Old Testament, uh, the mention of the river Euphrates would have conjured up certain images. It had a symbolic force to it. So these Christians were living in a particular situation. To them, mention of powers pent up at the Euphrates meant something. 
It conjured up images of the marauding hordes that constantly assaulted their homeland. It probably also brought to mind the myth that Nero had fled there and might return, bringing all manner of destruction with him. The vision shown to John is to be understood with these things in mind. When the Christians living within those seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor to whom this book was originally addressed read the words, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, they would not have thought, I wonder what this will mean for Christians living 2,000 years or more from now, but rather this image that John saw and has now given to us represents what has happened and what will happen time and again in human history. Nation will rise up against nation, people against people, bringing all manner of death and destruction. That is what is symbolized here in this text. Does it make sense to you? I'll pause. I, I, I speak at such a rapid pace, I know it. But I'll pause for a moment. These are visions shown to John filled with symbolism. And to think of these four demonic forces, these fallen angels, bound at the river Euphrates and then released at their appointed time should bring to mind this principle. That from time to time in human history, nation rises up against nation and conquers another nation. It is a part of the, the world in which we live and will be a part of the world in which we live on until the consummation when Christ returns. And so mention of angels bound at the Euphrates has symbolic force. It symbolizes all of these things. The voice from the altar addressed the sixth angel who had the trumpet saying, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, Revelation 9.14. So the four angels, verse 15, who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Notice that these angels were prepared, that is to say, they were made ready for a particular task to be accomplished at a particular time, the hour, the day, the month, and the year. The futurist believes, do you know what the futurist is by now? I hope so. I don't have to define it every time, do I? The futurist, I'll define it anyways, the one who believes that the book of Revelation is only about the future, from our vantage point. They believe that the hour, the day, the month, and the year is yet to come in our future. Uh, Tim LaHaye, I mention him again because I have his commentary, okay? I don't have a lot of dispensational commentaries on the book of Revelation, but I do have his, and so I've, it's been on my desk um, for, for the last few weeks. Uh, he is a popular dispensationalist and a futurist. He says, there is no need, listen carefully to his words, there is no need to spiritualize the great river Euphrates, considered by Bible scholars to be the greatest river of boundaries in the Bible. He's right about that. It is considered to be a great river of boundaries. Uh, that these four angels, that, the, that these four evil angels are today, he wrote this book in 1999, these four angels are today bound in that area of the world is no accident for it seems that some of the world's greatest events took place near the Euphrates River. So his view is that Revelation 9, 13 through 21 describes something that will happen yet in our future and that these four evil angels are right now bound somewhere near the Euphrates River. They're waiting still to be released. Our view is that Revelation 9, 13 through 21, though it describes events future to us, also describes events that were near in time to those who first read Revelation, having received it from John in 90 AD. 
It describes both. It describes events that will happen in our future, events that are happening right now, events that happened 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and in the day when John wrote this letter. I would even argue it describes events prior to that. Uh, We read from Jeremiah at the beginning of this sermon, and we see that there was a time when the Babylonians rose up and destroyed the Egyptians, and that battle took place at the Euphrates River at the appointed time. The language from that Jeremiah passage is brought into this Revelation passage in order to communicate to us that that same sort of thing is going to happen again and again. By the way, what, how did that Jeremiah passage end, the one that I read at the beginning of the, ser- the, the, the sermon? Threats against Egypt. But how did it end? Promises concerning God's covenant people. I will preserve you. You will be disciplined, but not completely and totally judged. I will preserve you. That is what's going on here in the book of Revelation. Christians, do not be troubled when you see nations rise up against nations. Do not be troubled when you see the world and chaos around you, but rather trust in God who has entered into covenant with you. He will preserve you. It may be that we are disciplined by the Lord. That happens. But we are not going to be the objects of His wrath. He will not forsake us, but He will keep us even in the midst of tumultuous times. In response to LaHaye's comment, there is no need to spiritualize the great river Euphrates, I say two things. One, I agree that we should not spiritualize the text, if by that he means interpreting this passage as if it will never have any real fulfillment that manifests itself in the physical world, but only spiritual meaning or application. I think that's what he means by spiritual. And then I would say, I agree We should not read the book of Revelation and think, well, there's only spiritual application to be made. Never will this come to be in the world, the things that are symbolized here. I do think that this text has been and will be fulfilled in the world through actual historical happenings. Rome eventually fell, didn't it? Right? Uh, Nations have fallen since this was written and will. Onto the consummation. I believe that these images portrayed here in Revelation 9 will be fulfilled in actual historical happenings. And so I do agree with his criticism that we should not just spiritualize this text. That is to, uh, to say that it only has spiritual application. We're not doing that. But two, though we ought not to spiritualize this passage in the way described above, we must take it as symbolic. We ought not to spiritualize this passage, but we must take it as symbolic. The whole of the book of Revelation is filled with symbols. The book communicates truth via symbol. That is why our first impulse should be not to ask, what does the river Euphrates... Uh, that, that is why our first Im- impulse should be to ask, what does the river Euphrates symbolize? And what does the releasing of the four angels bound there prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year represent in this vision? I hope I am not tiring you out with the technical talk. Um, I find it necessary to, to deal with these things as we progress through the book of Revelation so that we might interpret the book properly. Truth is communicated here. Truths that will be fulfilled in human history and have been, but they come to us by way of symbol. To miss that point, to miss that fact, is to handle the book inappropriately. In the mind of the futurists, there are literally four fallen angels, angels of destruction, bound right now at the Euphrates, and I suppose they've been there for over 1,900 years. They must be dusty by now. 
Uh, and they're waiting for the hour, the day, the month, and the year so that they might do what they have been prepared to do. But the idealist, which is what I am, interprets the passage differently and begins by asking what do these things represent and after discerning the symbolism associated with the number four the euphrates river the principle of restraint and releasing uh, we then move to ask the question how has this been fulfilled in the past and how might this come to be fulfilled in the future look at what happens when the angels are released Verse 15, the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. I'll simply ask this question. Is this a description of the final judgment? No, it is not. For only a third of mankind is touched by the releasing of these angels. It's something less than the final judgment, but clearly what is being described here is something very significant for a third of mankind to be killed. Um, Then we are told that the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard the number of them, John says. These mounted troops seem to appear out of nowhere um, in the text. These four ungodly angels have power over these ungodly spiritual forces. Literally their number, if we were to do the math, is 200 million. Can you imagine a force that large? Uh, This should, I think, remind us of what has just happened when the fifth trumpet was blown. Remember the fallen star was given the key to the bottomless pit. And when he opened that pit, what happened? There were these tremendous billows of smoke so thick that they blotted out the sun. And and then from um, from the smoke came what? Just millions upon millions, it must have been, of of locusts. And what did they do? But they went out and they tormented all who did not have God's seal upon them. It's the same thing here. The four angels are released, but when they are released, what happens? We see... A huge number, 200 million uh, mounted troops who are doing their bidding. It it, it mirrors the fifth trumpet uh, quite nicely. Verse 17, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sulfur and of, uh, of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Revelation 9, 17. These are ferocious creatures who bring about death and destruction. They have great power. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. Verse 18. Beale in his commentary notes that elsewhere in the apocalypse... The same phrase that is mentioned of fire and sulfur is always used in references to the final judgment of ungodly idolaters. That is chapter 14, 10, and 21, 8. Also, it is used in reference to the final judgment of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, 1920 and 2010. Therefore, 9.17 speaks of a similar judgment using the same language, but one that precedes the final judgment. Likewise, in the Old Testament, fire and sulfur, sometimes with smoke, indicate fatal judgment. You can look at Genesis 19, Deuteronomy 29, 2 Samuel 22, Isaiah 34, Ezekiel 38, and um, other texts as well, I'm sure. And so what do we have here except a depiction that in some ways mirrors the final judgment? This is God pouring out his wrath, but it is not a description of the final judgment for only a third are touched by these things. We're to make these connections. In verse 19, we read, For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. 
Uh, this should remind us of the description that was given of the locust in the previous text. It should also remind us that these are not literal horses, but symbolic creatures. They represent demons in such a way that reminds us of their power and their ferocity and also of the way that they deceive via words. They deceive. And so here uh, in this symbol, we, we have a reminder of the fact that there is a spiritual battle that is constantly raging around us. The things that we see with our natural eyes have behind them spiritual forces who, who are at work. We should not forget it. It seems to me that Christians living in America or in any place that has not been touched by war or significant civil unrest for some time have a particularly difficult time understanding what is symbolized here with the sounding of the sixth trumpet. You and I live with a sense of security not enjoyed by all in the world today, not to mention the history of the world. I want you to just for a moment imagine what it would have been like to live in Europe in the 1940s. Imagine that. What it would have been like to live in Europe in the 1940s and to have Hitler's armies on the border of your town. Right? I love watching war documentaries. I, they, they make me contemplative. I, I don't know. I, um, you know, it, it, it just helps you get into uh, the truth of the matter. This is how our world is. You and I have been so sheltered from it, I think, for the most of us we have. We've been very sheltered from it. The wars that are fought in this world tend to be a long way away from us. Some of us go to fight them. But for us who live here in the United States of America today, these wars are, are, are a distant thing. They're, they're, they're things that we consider by way of television screen. right? But imagine being in Europe in the 1940s or, or put yourself in Korea living near the 38th parallel in 1950. Or imagine living in Vietnam in the 60s and 70s. Somehow, I think, you might read Revelation 9, 13 through 21 a little differently if you were living in those places at those times. I think one of the reasons that Christians in our culture tend to, when they read the book of Revelation, only think, I wonder what this is about in the future, is because many of them have not lived in circumstances, personally, that are symbolized here in in the text of Scripture. I think certainly you would have thought this, if you were living in these regions at those times, this is being fulfilled now. I see it before my eyes. Death and destruction is all around me. Look at the power of the evil one unleashed. Look at how sick and sinful humanity is. Indeed, being surrounded on every side with death and destruction, you would have been right to say it appears as if the four angels bound at the Euphrates who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year have been released to kill a third of mankind. You would have thought, here it is right before me. It is happening. What is symbolized here in the text of Revelation is happening right before me. And if you had any knowledge of history... Add to it knowledge of history. If you had any knowledge of history, you would also say, this is not the first time. If you had any understanding of human nature, you would also say, this will not be the last time unless the Lord returns. So you see, my complaint against the futurist and the dispensationalist is not that they see the prophecies of the book of Revelation being fulfilled in the world today. So do I. So do I. 
My complaint against them is that they busy themselves trying to find the one event that fulfills this passage or that exhaustively so that they might start their countdown clocks. I think this is the approach that is misguided. This is the the approach that is misguided. Brothers and sisters, when we read the book of Revelation, we should think to ourselves, my goodness, this is a depiction of how things are in the world today, how they have been and how they will, will be until Christ returns. And yet I, as a Christian, am being comforted so tremendously to know that my Lord is sovereign over all. He is sovereign over all. You would think that men and women having a taste of judgment and having seen their eye, uh, seen with their eyes the depths of man's depravity would turn from their own sin to Christ. You, you see all of this portrayed here in the text and you think, okay, if, if, if I were to uh, observe this, four angels released, a third of mankind killed, idolaters judged, you know, by the powers here that are released, you would think it would bring you, if you happen to be of the two-thirds that survived it, to your knees. Look at what the text says, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What did they do except press on in their sinful and idolatrous ways. This parallels the Exodus event. Do you remember the plagues poured out upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh? One after the next. And then the Pharaoh, he says, okay, okay, I give up. Maybe we'll let them go. And then what happens? Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then another plague is delivered. And then he says, okay, I'll give up. We'll maybe let the people go. And then the text actually tells us that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And then the process continues time and time again. What is being shown to us here is that um, these, these things do not have the ability, these judgments do not have the ability to get the attention of sinful men. What is required is a work of the Holy Spirit and the gospel preached. The result here is that people are only more stubborn in their sinfulness as they witness these things though God has shown them mercy and has spared them for a time. I want to draw your attention to four things before we close. They will be quick. First of all, I want for you to notice the intensification that we see as the book of Revelation progresses. I want for you to remember how the seal cycle intensified as it progressed from seal to seal. Do you remember that? The first four seals described calamity in general. In the fifth seal, the souls of the martyrs cried out for justice. In the sixth seal, we have a description then of the final judgment from an earthly perspective. And the seventh seal described the final judgment from the heavenly perspective. So there is an intensification in the seal cycle. And I would also like for you to notice the intensification from the seals to the trumpet cycle. In the seal cycle, one-fourth of the earth was affected by the judgments poured out. But here in the trumpet cycle, one-third of humanity of the idolaters are killed. The judgments poured out are also less generic and more pointed here in the trumpet cycle. Things are more direct. 
The description is not of natural disasters and calamities in general, but actually God pouring out judgment upon those who do not belong to Christ, who are idolaters. Also, the imagery seems to me to be much more graphic here in the trumpet cycle. And then notice the intensification from trumpet to trumpet. In the first four trumpets, the realms of creation were touched, disturbing the natural order of things, taking comfort and security from the earth dweller. In the fifth, those who did not belong to Christ were tormented spiritually and psychologically, but in a limited way. Only for five months, the locusts were not able to kill them. But in the sixth trumpet, one-third of all the idol worshipers are killed. So there is intensification from trumpet to trumpet. And then I will simply mention this. We will see intensification as we move from the trumpet cycle to the bowl cycle. Yes, brothers and sisters, there is another cycle of seven. In the book of Revelation, we will see seven bowls poured out. And when we come to those bowls, we will see that this is all a description of the final judgment. Uh, no longer is it a description of something temporary, partial, and perpetual. The meaning is this, I think. The world, people and nations, tend towards evil and not towards good. And therefore, the judgments of God intensify according to the, accordingly in the lives of individuals and, and nations. And this pattern repeats itself, not only in the book of Revelation, but also in human history. Are you following what I'm saying here? So the book of Revelation recapitulates. It tells the same story again and again. But we see within the recapitulation, intensification. Repetition, but intensification within the repetition. I think we see the same pattern in the world, don't we? Where a nation will rise and a nation will fall. A nation will rise and might start off fairly good, virtuous, moral, but it tends to degenerate over time. I think we see this in, in the lives of individual people as well. We see that, that individual people tend to get not better naturally, naturally, but worse. And in order for them to get better, it takes an act of God. It takes regeneration. It takes the Holy Spirit. I think this is the pattern that we see in the world. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. He sat on the Mount of Olives, Olives, and the disciples came to Jesus privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are but the beginning of birth pains. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What is the sense you get as you read this text? Is Jesus here, does he have an optimistic view concerning culture? As if it is going to get better and better with time? Indeed, that is the view that dominates our society today. The progressives dominate, assuming that, you know what, if we just leave men to themselves, they will certainly improve. They certainly have not read the scriptures, nor have they looked at the world around them, I think. 
The scriptures seem to point in a different direction, that over time things tend not to get better but worse. I've said much against the dispensationalists and the uh, pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists and the futurists, I, I, whatever you want to call them. I've said much about them, uh, but here I should probably say a word about the post-millennialists. Uh, the post-millennialists think the way that we do on many fronts, but they have this one difference with us. They have a very optimistic view concerning culture. They believe that as the gospel of the kingdom advances, that so too will culture, so that eventually the world becomes more and more of a godly and Christian place. Then the Lord returns, post-millennium. I say to them, that seems to be out of step with the clear teaching of the New Testament, in my opinion. I'm very optimistic, brothers and sisters, concerning the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God will advance on until the consummation. The gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. But in my view, that will create more conflict with the culture and not less. And so the direction seems to be in that way. This pattern of intensification and degeneration uh, seems to apply to the world. It seems to apply to nations as they rise and fall. It seems to be applied to individuals. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1, 18 and onward. I will not read the whole text for the sake of time, but this seems to be our way as individuals. We tend to suppress the truth of God more and more as we live in this world instead of growing more and more tender to it unless the Spirit of God works upon us. Secondly, notice the principle of restraint in this passage. The destructive angels who were eventually released were first of all bound, weren't they? Who binds them, brothers and sisters? Do they bind themselves? Do we bind them? No, it is God who binds them, who restrains them, who holds them back. Satan, we saw last week, is himself bound in some ways. And also these fallen angels are bound or restrained until God determines to release them in order to accomplish his purposes and to pour out his judgments. And when they are released, the text says, they are permitted to kill one-third of the idolaters. That means that two-thirds of the enemies of God are spared. Those who blaspheme God, saying, if there is a God, then why is there so much suffering in the world today? I would say this, it is only because God is merciful that there is not more suffering in the world today. God would be right to judge all fully and finally. If we have a proper view of God and a proper view of our sinfulness, this is indeed what we would have to confess. But He is merciful to all. He is unimaginably gracious to those whom He has determined to reconcile to Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, This should be our view of humanity. Merciful to all in that He has not judged all now, but unimaginably gracious to those whom He has determined to reconcile to Himself through faith in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, notice the principle of permission. Certainly God will judge in a most direct way in the future, but He also judges by way of permission. He gives men up over and over to their sins. Romans 1, the text I began to quote, makes that clear. He judges by giving men up to their sins, permitting them to walk according to their sinful desires so that they reap the consequences of their ways. And He also permits the evil one and his cronies uh, to be active in this world 
They are restrained, that we have already seen, but he does permit them to act so that he might bring about his judgments through them. And then lastly, let me remind you of God's ability to preserve those who are his. What is described here in the sixth trumpet is God's judgment poured out upon those who do not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor do they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. These are the ones judged. This corresponds to the fifth seal. It is those who do not have God's mark on them who come under his judgments in that text. Christians suffer in this world, do they not? Some of you can testify to that fact in a very personal way. But for the child of God, the suffering is for good. It is to refine. The end of it, the suffering that the Christian endures, is life. But for those not in Christ, the suffering is plain judgment. Its end is death. And so the message is this, brothers and sisters, turn to Christ, confess your sin to him, trust in him, cling to him always, and see that God is good and that he rewards those who seek him, Hebrews eleven six. Do you ever get tired of hearing that application? I hope not. It's a very simple application, one that you've heard from me over and over again. Trust in Christ, friends. Cling to him. Remain in Christ. See that he is a God that rewards those who seek him. But there is much wisdom in it. And it's important for us to hear, especially as we live in this difficult world, this world that can be so discouraging. When we look at the world around us, we are tempted as Christians to despair, are we not? Are we not tempted to lose hope? Are we not tempted to just give up when we see the world and all of the destruction and all of the evil that is in it? But here the book of Revelation is saying this is how things are going to be on to the end. But God, where is he, brothers and sisters? Where is he? He is enthroned. He is our sovereign Lord. He has power over all of these things. And the book of Revelation is making it clear that he is bringing things, human history, to his desired end. And therefore we are to trust in him. Let us pray. Father in heaven. We do thank you that you are merciful and gracious. We thank you, Lord, that you have determined not to bring about the end now, not to judge fully, though you would not be wrong to do so, but that you have left time. You have left time uh, to gather in your elect from all the earth. You have left time to leave room for the sinner to repent as the word is preached and as your spirit works. Lord, you've also left time for us, your people, to be refined so that we might be prepared for glory. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, for myself as well, that we would live daily in this world with this goal in mind, and that we would be about your purposes. Lord, give us opportunities to proclaim the gospel to the world. Also, show us how it is that we need to be sanctified. Bring us to repentance, Lord. And Father, do not allow us to lose hope, but keep our hearts tender and trusting. Lord, give us the faith that we need to continue to proclaim the gospel in this world, knowing that apart from you, things are hopeless, but in you and through Christ Jesus, there is all the reason in the world to believe that you are able to convert the sinner and to rescue them from their condition. We thank you, Lord, for this marvelous book. Continue to transform our minds by it, we pray. In Christ's name we say these things. Amen.